Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. How are we doing today? We good? It is good to be here. Every time I hear that music for this, I'm like amped, like ready to run through a wall. It's got like this epic feel to it that I'm like, let's go. And so with that, Let's jump into scripture, all right? <laughs> I'm good to be here. We've never met before. My name is Tommy. I get the amazing privilege of being the West Dallas campus pastor. I love being here. I love what I do, and I would love to meet you after this service. If you could do me a favor, if actually, if you could pull out your study guide, if you have one. If you don't, if you could pull out something to write on. We're going to try something here in a second, but you're going to need to write something down. So if you have that, whether you have your program or something else, if you have your study guide, go ahead and open to page 29. 29. And when you open, you'll notice that it's a big blank section. Um, There are questions on the next page, but I want to start on this blank section. What I want you to do is in a second, I'm going to give you um, a sentence with a blank in it. And I want you to fill in that blank in a second, all right? What I want you to do is fill it in with three to four words that come to mind, whether it's adjectives or whatever. But I want you to fill in this blank. And we're going to take a few seconds to do that. So it may be awkwardly silent. That's okay. I want you to just think and write these down, all right? So here's the sentence. Fill in this blank. Jesus is fill in the blank. Jesus is fill in the blank. Take Take about like 20 to 30 seconds right now. Go for it. All right, you can go ahead and keep writing, but as you're writing, what what words did you use? Or maybe what words came to mind? Uh, Maybe some uh, more familiar ones like Jesus is God, or Jesus is loving, kind, gracious. Or maybe you filled it in with more feeling words like he is my safe place, or I've heard someone say this before, he is my happy person, right? Like, I don't know what you wrote, but you do. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep this list open in front of you. I want you to keep this list open in front of you. And it's today, as we go through, I want you to look at how Paul would fill in this blank. In fact, the passage we're going to dive into does look at this. Where does your list and Paul's, where are they the same? Where do they differ? What are some things maybe that need adjusted? Or how is your list growing because of what Paul said? And I also want to encourage you this way. This week in your small group, if you're a part of one, talk about these lists. Not just the one Paul made, but what's the one you wrote? Part of us doing this is to continue to grow in understanding who Christ is. And actually, Paul's going to finish this sentence. He's going to finish this. He's going to fill in this blank. And we're going to look at that. We're going to be in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Colossians 1. So if you want to open your Bible or your smartphone, and i got to be careful this week in saying open up your smartphone. Um, If you can go to scripture and not nfl.com, that would be great. Um, uh, if you want to open up your Bible, your smartphone to Colossians 1, 15 through 23, I'm going to read the whole section. Um, it's a little bit longer, but after we're done reading it, we're going to work our way through it. So I'm going to read the whole thing. So follow along as I read Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once was alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Beautiful section, right? <laughs> I love this passage. In fact, most of the time when you're saying, hey, we're working through Colossians, this is the like, kind of marquee passage in the book. There's other ones, but this is the one a lot of times people go to. I'd encourage you this way. If you're looking for a passage to memorize, this is perfect for that. This is a perfect passage to memorize. Um, And there's a lot going on here, right? A lot going on in this passage. And we could spend months on these verses, but we're not. Um, Instead, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pull apart little pieces of it. We could pull apart the whole thing. And if you know anything about me, I love pulling apart phrases, right? Um, And we're going to do that. We just can't do it for everything. Um, So for the sake of time, we're gonna do some of these. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna be looking at two sides of a coin. And what I mean by that is there's two ideas going on here in this passage that without them, I, I think we miss the importance of what Paul is saying. So the first side of this coin is this. It's actually Paul answering the question or the sentence we started earlier. First side of the coin is Jesus is fill in the blank. Jesus is fill in the blank. That's the first side of the coin. And I'd encourage you over the next few minutes, we're gonna give several ways that Paul actually describes it. So you can fill in this blank with several different things. And the first one is this. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's kind of a cool phrase, right? But what does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. Jesus is answer, the answer to the question, what if God became a real human being? What if God became a real human being? What if God was one of us, right? Like he's answering this question. What if God became a real physical human being? God, Jesus is God in human flesh. He was fully breathing, fully moving, as human as you and I are, but with one major added difference. He's also fully God, fully God. And Paul continues by saying that what he is fully God over. Look at the rest of verse 15. What does he say? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is God in in human form, and Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Okay, this phrase can actually be a little bit tricky. You may look at that and go, this doesn't seem that tricky, but let me try to explain this. We've been saying this throughout the series, and we're gonna continue saying this phrase even beyond this series, and it's this. The Bible cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. The Bible cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them. And this phrase is actually included in this. And let me try to explain it this way. Um, What comes to mind when you first hear the term firstborn? What comes to mind? Well, for me, it's actually this picture. Let me see if we can get it up there. It's this picture is what comes to mind. All right, two things. One, I had to show you that I've been a Packers fan since birth. All right, I had to do that. Um, And two, I need to show you that I was raised in the way that you should go. Go, Pack, go. All right, 
and on a week like today, I just had to find a way to slide this in there, all right? Um, no, it's like, this is, this is it. So this is a picture. This is my brother and my sister. Um, my brother, on the, his, his name is Joel. It's actually his birthday today. He's married. He and his wife, they live in Texas. Um, they just had their first baby in the last year. And then that's my sister on the left. Her name is Danny. Um, she travels with Wicked, the Broadway play. She's on staff with them. She's an unbelievable musician. And I could gloat about them, honestly, for the next, how long we got? Um, I very easily could. I'm not. Um, the, why do I show you this picture? Well, the reason I show you this picture is because, I don't know if you know this, I'm actually the oldest child in my family. Um, I am the oldest in my family. And so when I think of the term firstborn, this is the image that pops into my head. However, even though this is my interpretation of the passage, that's not what Paul's trying to get at. Paul is not trying to say that he's the firstborn of the eldest child. He's actually saying something else. Remember, the Bible cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. And so to Paul and the church, this is what they would say. Firstborn means someone who has premacy, authority, or special status. Firstborn means someone who has premacy, authority, or special status. Premacy just simply means he is the first. Actually, Paul uses that word. This is him just saying it another way. That he's, that Paul is saying he's the first in everything. Um, let me explain where this comes from, all right? In the day and age of this scripture, the idea of firstborn could have meant eldest child, right? But more often than not, it meant something completely different. The firstborn was the, actually the individual who had the rights to become the boss over the entire family. They were the one who had special authority. Um, He is the one who would be in charge of anything. So this, the firstborn, is talking about an authority position, not being the first one created or born. It's a key distinction, all right? This is talking about an authority position, not one created or born. You see, the idea of a firstborn child, he would, um, in this day and age, would have been the one who would eventually become the boss of the family, They'd be the one who would take over the mantle. They would take that position and have authority. And, so if you, and, and the firstborn son usually was the one who took over everything, but that wasn't always the case. Um, there are a couple times in Scripture where we see that the authority figure, that the firstborn status, goes to somebody else. There's one story in the Old Testament between Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the younger brother, and Esau was the older brother. And Jacob wanted the firstborn rights or the authority that was to be given to him. And so he tricked Esau into giving him the firstborn rights over a bowl of soup. Yes, that's the story. That must be some really good soup, all right? He's, and so th- that's the kind of the concept. It's this idea of this authority position. It's this idea of what is like the premacy or a special to others. And so what is Paul getting at? Paul is saying the firstborn is the one who has the authority or is the first in everything. And that's what the Colossian church would have heard. But what is Paul saying that Jesus is the firstborn or has authority over? Look at verse 15. What does he say? Jesus is the firstborn of creation. And he gets specific. He doesn't just say creation and back up. He gets specific on what is creation. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul's taking that idea of firstborn and saying it's over all of creation. What's Paul getting at? Paul is saying Jesus is the boss over everything, seen and unseen. Jesus is the one who has authority or special status over all creation. He isn't merely a human being. He's also God. He's the one that holds it together because he is the one who made everything 
and he's the reason all things exist. Paul is also trying to get across this point. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, outside of Jesus' authority. Whether we like it or not, everything has been made and is inside Jesus' control. Everything. But what does that mean for us? Right? I mean, that's cool and all. Like, okay, this firstborn idea, I kind of get it. He has special authority and status. Whoop-de-doo. Well, let me ask you this. What would change in your life if you view Jesus as the authority of everything? Or let me put it another way. I'll get a little more personal. What would change in your life if you truly believed that Jesus was the authority of everything in your life? What areas of your life would be different? How would it change how you view your finances and your stuff? How about how you spend your time? How you view your neighbor? How you view that family member or coworker or person that you really struggle with? What you do with your free time? What community you surround yourself? How about this? How would it change your purpose in life? You see, I think this idea of seeing Jesus as authority is actually a really big deal. If what Paul is saying here is true, that changes how we view Jesus because we see him for who he really is, but it also changes who has the final say on everything, right? If Jesus is the authority of all creation, we should see that that includes us. We're his created beings. And not only are we his created beings, but actually if you look around this room and this building itself, Christ is the head of that too. In fact, that's what verses 17 and 18 say. Look at that. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, Paul is saying Christ holds everything together, including his church. Let that be an encouragement. (laughs) Nothing happens in the church that is a surprise to Christ. How do I know that? Well, Jesus has been around for a while. He's probably seen a thing or two. He's not surprised, but he's still the head. (laughs) He is constantly retooling and he's refocusing the church in many different ways. And at times it's really painful. And at times it's really hard. But in the end, Christ is still in control. He is the authority. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded of that constantly. <laughs> I need to be reminded that he's had no matter what, Christ is still in charge. And to Paul, that's actually a really good thing. He sees Christ as the boss, or the authority of the church. And now he's going to continue to expound on what else is Christ the head over. And you see this. He says, what is he firstborn? Look at verse 18. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, So not only is Christ the firstborn over creation, and he's the head of the church, but also he's the firstborn from the, help me here. Try it again. He's the firstborn from the dead, right? All right, we need to pause for a second. This is a big claim. Remember, firstborn means someone who has premacy, authority, or special status. So in other words, what is Paul saying here? Jesus has authority over death itself. Jesus has authority over death. Do you catch how big of a deal this is? Listen, I've grown up in the church pretty much all of my life. So for me to hear this or even say it, sometimes I can forget how big of a deal it is. Jesus is the authority of death. I'm accustomed to hearing it. Jesus was raised from the dead. Woohoo! happy Easter, right? But if I'm honest, sometimes I forget how big of a deal this is. Jesus conquered death. Like, that is a big deal. Who else can make this claim? No one. 
No one can. Who else can say that after being dead for three days that they were raised, that they were raised themselves from the dead? This is a big deal. Actually, in this whole list, this might be the biggest deal of what Paul is saying about Jesus. In the early church, the resurrection was celebrated almost more than anything else. Why? Because the resurrection proves Jesus is who he says he is. You see, before Jesus died, Jesus made the claim that in three days, this temple will rise. And he was talking about physically coming back from the dead. And so if that didn't happen, let's say Jesus stayed dead, what would that mean? What he said wasn't true, right? But because he rose from the dead, because he conquered death, everything he said must be true, including his claim about being God. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. That is why this is, Jesus is different. He's more than just a teacher. He was a good teacher. He's more than just a prophet. He was a good prophet. He's more than just a man that walked on this earth 2,000 odd years ago and physically died. Because he rose from the dead, everything is different about him. Can I get an amen? Like, can you tell how much, like, this is a big, big deal. If this is true, this is a game changer. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that makes all he said true. Everything. And for Paul, there is no question. Jesus is the dude that rose from the dead. There is zero question. This makes Paul, at the end of verse 18, actually say this. Jesus is um, preeminent in everything. Or another way of saying it, he surpasses all others. There is nobody like Christ. Another way of saying it, he's holy. The word holy means to be set apart or to be distinctually different than anything else. That is Jesus. He surpasses all others. He's more unique and he's special. Look, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the authority of all creation. He is the head of the church. He is the authority over death and he surpasses all others. This is Jesus. See, up to this point in the book of Colossians, we've seen how Paul has said it's all centered on Christ. And instead of just saying, look, we all believe in Jesus and just assuming that we all agree, he gets very specific in making sure we know which Jesus he's talking about. And that's what's going on. He's doubling down in this section to show us who Jesus is. Paul really wants you to know, both of us, you and I, to understand who Jesus is. For Paul, everything, including his reason for living, is centered on who Christ is, but also what Christ has done for us. Wait, what Christ has done? See, up to this point, all we've seen is who Jesus is. Well, this is the other side of the coin that I think is so important when we look at Jesus that we see. There's who Jesus is, but we cannot separate that also from what Christ has done. That's the second point today. The second side of the coin is what Christ has done. Who Jesus is matters because it influences what he's done, but what he's done proves that who he is is true. And what did Christ do? Well, look at verses 20 through 22. And through him, Jesus, he reconciled all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Check this out. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because Jesus is God, and because he rose from the dead, Paul sees that as making what he did on the cross the payment for our sins. See, if Jesus never rose from the dead, that means he just died. 
But Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins and to be the one who's gonna forgive us. So when Jesus died, everyone's like, well, it's what he said true. And then he rose from the dead. People are like, oh, I guess what he said was right. So Paul is saying here that, that Paul sees that Jesus' death on the cross pays the price that sin demands so that we can have peace with God. Not just a peace treaty, like, okay, we're good, and he walks away. No, peace is to be made whole or to be brought back to the way it was supposed to be. And what is it was the way it was supposed to be? We were supposed to be in relationship with God. We were supposed to be there. At some points in our life, at some points, every single one of us are, were distant from God. And let me be honest, some of us are still distant from him now. Maybe you're here investigating Jesus, trying to figure out who is this guy, what is this church. Let me just say, I'm glad you're here. And I just want to say this, whether consciously or unconsciously, every single one of us were separated from God with no way to fix that. No way. Our sin caused that separation. Scripture says for the wages or the cost of sin is death or separation from God. And that's the cost of us doing anything that is against God. That's what causes separation. That's what verse 21 is talking about. But the gift of God is, look at verse 22, that we are now reconciled or we're made right, (laughs) that our relationship is restored with Christ because of what he has done on the cross. We are made whole again. We are forgiven and loved in ways that, like, we're more messed up than we think we are, but way more loved than we can imagine. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the reason why each one of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we have hope. And why does he do this? Why in his love? What is the, what is the outcome of that? Look at verse 20 through 22. In order, so he did all this, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, in the first few verses we looked at, we looked at who Jesus is, right? We see his magnificent power, his incredibleness. Um, Paul uses some pretty big words, right? When's the last time he used the word uh, preeminent in a, in, a, in a phrase, right? He's using some big words to describe God, but don't miss this. In those big words, it's because he wants you to know who he is and he wants to show you how grandiose, but the same God is also the relational one who cares about you. That same big God is the same one that loves you. That's mind-blowing. Jesus cares about you. And I think when we truly indwell this, or we, we understand it, I think that you can't do anything but change you, right? Forgiven people should forgive. <laughs> Loved people should love. And I believe this truth of Christ dying and who he is and what he's done should lead us to respond. And what is that response? Worship. It's worship. And it's not just the worship and what we do here on Sundays, although let's be real, it's pretty good. It's also in how we live Monday through Saturday. Paul's actually gonna describe to us what is worship. Look at 23. If you indeed continue in the, here's where the worship comes in, in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look, Paul is saying here that if we truly believe that we are holy and blameless before God because of what Jesus has done, that should lead us to have faith or to live out what we believe. It should, should have us be stable and steadfast or when it gets tough, we stick with it. And it says to not shift from the hope. In other words, be reminded constantly of the hope we have in the future in Christ. That's what worship looks like. It's to be faithful, stable, and steadfast and be reminded 
of the hope he has for us. Look, worship is us singing here. Let me be clear, all right? Worship is also us praying, reading scripture, hearing the word preached, tithing, and everything we do on a weekend. But worship is also how we live our lives. That's what Paul's getting at. In other words, Christ should be the center of all things. It's almost like this title was on purpose. Right? Christ should be the center of all things, especially in how we live our life out in faith. And let this be an encouragement to you, not, not a beat down, but let's be encouraged. Based upon what Christ has done and who he is, if we believe that, man, let's live a life worthy of it. Let's live a life that shows who Christ has been. If we've been forgiven and given a great gift, I hope that we want to share that with those around us. I hope if we understand how truly loved we are, as Paul claims, which, let's be real, is pretty crazy, then we would want to love people in the same manner and want them to know that truth. You see, we agree with Paul here that Christ should be the center of all things. We do. If you didn't know that, newsflash. We do. But look at the last four words of verse 23. I think this is important. Of which Paul became a minister. Why is that so important? I think it's this. Paul is saying the reason that he can proclaim the gospel, the reason he can live and do life the way he does, is because of who Christ is and what he's done for him. The reason Paul has any authority, any ability to proclaim the good news is because he sees who Christ is and he's seen what he's done and that's what gives him credence. Church, I want you to hear me very clearly. The reason we exist as a church, the reason you and I sit here, the reason any of us believe and do the things we do is centered on Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Can I be real? Sometimes I can forget that. Sometimes I get so focused on my day-to-day and the checklist of just doing life and just going along that I can forget this. Um, I can be living day-to-day as if I'm sleepwalking through life or sleepwalking through my way with Jesus Christ. Um, Let me try it. Have you ever seen a person sleepwalk before? Have you ever seen it before? It's both hilarious and terrifying, right? Right? Like, if you've ever seen a person sleepwalk, I think YouTube is full of these. Please don't look at it now, but it's full of these. Um, I asked my daughter if I could tell this story, so I have permission, although she's seven, so I don't know how much she actually understands what she said yes to. Um, My daughter, Hazel, is a sleepwalker. Not all the time, but you catch her at the right time. Um, You can get that. One time, I remember, my wife used to work night shift as a nurse, and I was sitting on the couch. It was 9 o'clock. They were in bed, and all of a sudden, she comes out. Her eyes are closed. 9 p.m., remember that. She looks at me and goes, when's lunch? Okay, when you're not ready for a kid to walk around a corner, that's terrifying, and it was pretty funny, too. Like, I gotta be real. So I woke her up and took her back to bed. It was fine. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I came home from a date, and there was a couple who were watching our kids, Um, and so they put the kids to bed, and they told us the story of Hazel walking out of her room, walking into the kitchen, opening um, the kitchen door, thinking it was the bathroom door. Thankfully, it stopped there. They caught her in time, all right? So we didn't have to deal with anything after that. But they said it was hysterical. Like, Hazel, what are you doing? She goes, I gotta go potty. She was sleepwalking, right? What happens when we sleepwalk? Well, what was she doing? She was just going through the motions of life without ever forgetting the why and the heart or being awake in Christ. If I'm not careful, I can sleepwalk through my way and my relationship with Christ and how I live. If I'm not careful, that's a trap that I think we can fall into. I think we can get so focused on what we're doing and the checklist and doing all the right things and trying to earn God's grace that we can forget to wake up 
and be reminded of our reason why and stop sleepwalking our way in our relationship with Christ. Listen, my purpose and reason in life cannot be found in my abilities. My purpose and reason in life is not found in my good intentions or me trying to do the right thing. No, no, no. It's found in nothing else other than Christ. Can I speak boldly for a second? I think in this season we're in now as a church, in this season of change, in this season of beginning to move forward from the pains of our past, we gotta be really careful that we don't sleepwalk our way through it. I wanna be really clear. Um, it, we, in order to not sleepwalk, I think we need to be reminded of the mission that Christ has for us. Listen, it's not about us. Never was, and it never should be. It's not about Epicos. Our job is not to make Epicos' name great. I don't know if you know that or not. You know what our job is? To make Jesus' name known. That's what we're about. Listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, if you don't hear anything else I say, if you've been, whatever you're doing, I want you to look, look at me right here, all right? Our job in making more and better disciples is so that we can take the love of Christ out there and make who Jesus is and what he has made known. All right, let me be clear. Let me say it again. Our job in making more and better disciples is so that we can take the love of Christ to people so they can experience and know who he is, but not just know who he is, so we can transform them to be more like him. That is our job. That's what we can't sleepwalk through. We have to be awake to that. See, listen, I want you to know, you want to know my heart? You want to know my, my why? It's because as I live, no, 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 I desire to make Jesus make sense in everything I do. I desire to make Jesus make sense in everything I do. Does that mean I'm perfect at it? No. But even as I've been studying this, it's been a reminder to me that I can't sleepwalk my way through that. Listen, I want you to know and experience who Jesus is. I want you to know the freedom and the love that is found in him. I want you to grow in your understanding of who God is and marvel at his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and all the other attributes of who he is and what he has done. And then my hope is from that, that we don't just treat it as knowledge, but we treat that as the fuel for the reason why we go and live the way we do. That is what Paul's talking about. That is Paul's why. That, hopefully, is my why too. Paul wants us to know about Christ's redemptive work on the cross and find a life that lives out that truth. And honestly, as a follower of Christ, I hope that's your why too. To live in a manner worthy of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not out of a sense of earning his grace, but a sense of showing those around me. If we really are loved by him, we should love those around me. As we close today, you may be saying, this all sounds great, right? Like, let's go, but how do we do that? Well, as we go, I wanna leave you with three questions to kind of help process how do I go kind of moving on and what does it look like to live a life that shows that? Well, the first one is this. Do I agree with what Paul is saying about Jesus? Do I agree with what Paul is saying about Jesus. Look, you can't live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ unless you know who that Christ is. I think this is why it's so important. Like, you need to continue to grow in understanding of Christ. For Paul, this is his reason. This is the place he starts. And so my question would be is, do you agree that he is God? That he lived perfect life? That he died the death that you and I deserve and he rose again so that we could have relationship with him and be brought back in peace? And this leads me to my second question. Do I see Jesus for who he really is? 
Do I see Jesus for who he really is? Look back at your initial fill in the blank answer. All right, the thing we did at the very beginning, hopefully you still have that list. Um, If I were to ask this question now, what three or four words would you use now? Did it change? Did it grow? I hope so. I think we need to be constantly learning how to fill in this blank and not for what I want Jesus to be, but who he really is. You see, from five years ago to now, and I'm just using that as just a, like arbitrary time, my list has gotten a lot longer in who Jesus is. You know why? Because I'm studying his word. I'm understanding who he is. That if I were to take it now, the list has gotten longer. And here's what gets me excited. Five years from now, I hope that list is even longer. And when we get to eternity, that list is going to get way longer. That's what excites me actually about the future with Christ. Am I seeing him from who he is and am I growing it? This is actually the reason why we have small groups. The reason why we do preaching on the weekend. The reason why we even sing the songs we do is we desire desperately for you to know the real Jesus and who he is. And this leads me to my third question. What in your life needs shifted in order to live a life worthy of the gospel? What in your life might need shifted or tweaked in order to be worthy of the gospel? Look, for some of us, it may be a total shift. We're realizing that we're living out of our own purpose and design. And we need to live a life that shows who Christ is. Um, it might be a big, so like, maybe it's this. It's not chasing after the American dream in terms of, I need to get all I can for me. But how do we use the gifts and abilities and the stuff we have to be a launching pad for ministry? The shift in my brain from the place I live is just my sanctuary to it's the place where I'm, it's my jumpstart of ministry to view my neighbors as people God loves and wants to know. Maybe it's this, um, I grew up loving sports, can you tell? (laughs) I loved playing them and I used to compete to win all the time, which there's nothing wrong with that. However, I realized that was my sole purpose. And my shift in seeing living a life worthy of Christ was to say, actually what's important is not as much winning as much as who are the people that I'm playing with and am I displaying the love of Christ as I'm living? Listen, the love of Christ does not go away on the basketball court. All right? It's that kind of a shift. And I would say this one too, how I spend my time. How I spend my time. Man, I, as I was reading through this, it just hit me. I can never be too busy for the one who created me. I can't. That's a trap I can fall into. That's the sleepwalking where I'm just living day to day, forgetting that and not spending time. Listen, I can't be too busy for him. You know why? Because he's never too busy for me. He is never too busy for you to spend time with him in prayer in his community, with him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to live a life that experiences and knows who he is, but also shares that with those around you. Earlier today, the worship team, um, we introduced a new song. It's called Christ Be Magnified. And I actually think that song sums this passage up really well, almost like we did that intentionally, right? Um, My hope is this, that when we sing this song, we're actually gonna sing it again at the end of the service. My hope is this, when you sing it, I hope it's not just a song of words that you're just throwing out there, but it's a prayer of affirmation and faith saying, this is how I want to live. And this is how that chorus goes. Oh, Christ, be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ, be magnified in me. Oh, Christ, be magnified. From the altar of my life, Christ, be magnified in me. I hope that you understand and know who Christ is and what he has done for you because I truly believe living that life will keep you from sleepwalking and living a life for him. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your, that you are, that you're God, that you love us and care for us and you desire so much for us to know you 
That God, that Paul would find, find you so incredible that he would take the time to write this letter so that we could know you more fully. God, I pray today that we continue to grow in understanding of who you are, but we also understand what you've done so that we can take that as fuel for the way we live our life. God, you are good and worthy to be praised. And we thank you for all you've done and will continue to do. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.